You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. I'm Jonathan Rowson. I'm uh, an associate at the RSA, which broadly means I used to work here and we still like each other. Um, I now run a, a small research organization called Perspectiva, which is broadly about, broadly about connecting the inner life of human beings to complex global challenges. So I'm delighted to hear about today's event and very happy to chair it. I'm delighted to welcome James Williams, who is a doctoral candidate at the Oxford Internet Institute and Balliol College, where he researches the philosophy and ethics of attention and persuasion as they relate to technology design. He's also a member of the Digital Ethics Lab at Oxford and a visiting researcher at the the Uihero Center for Practical Ethics. I've probably mispronounced that. Prior to that, he worked for over 10 years at Google. I guess you've all heard of Google. (laughs) Um, where he received the Founders Award, the company's highest honour for his work on advertising products and tools. He joins us today to share some of the ideas contained in his winning submission to the Nine Dots competition, a prize that aims to crowdsource innovative solutions to pressing societal challenges. Welcome, James. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, Thank you all for coming today, uh, giving up your precious time and attention on a a Thursday to come and uh, and uh, and hear this talk. Um, thank you to the RSA for having me, and uh, and again thank you uh, to the Nine Dots Prize those of you here here today. Uh, related with that, uh, you know, for this uh, this kind of amazing kind of experience the last month or so, where um, you know this opportunity has emerged to I think you know bring an issue that I care very much about and have given several years uh, to study um, to bring that to kind of a broader societal. Um, a broader societal awareness. Uh, so, as Jonathan said, I'm going to be talking about attention, persuasion, technology design, and some implications for politics and where we are right now in the world. Um, and I, but I'd like to start not with the latest technology, but uh, a v- very long time ago, a man named Diogenes of Sinope uh, back in ancient Greece, who I think is probably the closest thing philosophy has ever produced to a, what we would today call a troll. Uh, he was, uh, you know, he, he took a vow of poverty and lived in this ceramic barrel in the Corinthian marketplace. He was rude and kind of impulsive, outrageous. Um, you know, he would show up at Socrates' lectures and eat loudly to interrupt them. Uh, don't get any ideas. Uh, but he was actually deeply admired by Alexander the Great, who was arguably the most powerful person in the world at the time. Um, and there's a story that uh, is found in several sources about uh, Alexander one day coming to Corinth, coming into the marketplace up to Diogenes in a ceramic barrel and, uh, and saying, Diogenes, I admire you so much. Tell me what any one wish you would desire and I will grant it. And Diogenes, you know, true to his form, he was lying in the sun at the time and he said to Alexander, stand out of my light. And I think, I love this story for a lot of reasons, but I, one big reason is because I think it gives us some notes about the attitude we ought to have toward digital technologies uh, at this point uh, in history. Because I think, like Alexander, digital technologies are these, you know, the empires of the mind. They're, they're, they have this enormous power over our, our lives, our attention, our experience. Um, and they, they brought us so many benefits. Uh, you know, I, I grew up, with my father working in the technology field, and I, I'm, so I'm very much pro-technology, but as I was working in this field, I began to see that technologies were standing in a light, so to speak. Uh, and it was a light that was so essential for human flourishing that without it, I think all the other benefits technology gives us may not do us a lot of good. And that light, of course, is, is the light of human attention. And I think there's something very profound and maybe irreversible happening to human attention in the digital age. Um, I think it's more than just distraction, and it's more than even just addiction. Uh, I think it could actually be the defining political and moral challenge of our time in, in grappling with, with, this, with this issue. And so what I wanted to do today uh, in this, this brief amount of time I have with you is, is to tell you why I think so and uh, give you a little bit of a, a sense of what we can start to do about it to kind of change the situation. So I want to start with kind of clearing the ground with an observation that Herbert Simon made in the 1970s. Uh, about when information becomes abundant, attention becomes the scarce resource. So this is an observation that I think we're, you know, we're only just starting to understand what it means for 
uh, for you know, human life and society. Um, I think a great deal of confusion about the role of digital technologies in the world today comes from the lack of taking this observation into account. Uh, and so I think that this is the proper standpoint from which to begin in, in looking at, at kind of the role of digital technologies in our daily lives, because this, this sort of figure ground inversion has basically happened to the entire world. Um, and because attention is the scarce resource now, uh, it's now the thing that our technologies mostly compete for. So this attention that we're giving each other right now is literally the object of competition for these things in our pockets. It's kind of a striking thing to think about. But this whole environment that has emerged in the last several years to, to compete for our attention in scientific, systematic ways uh, is often called the attention economy. And in the attention economy, our technologies are trying to grab our attention and direct it toward the goals that they have. And often those goals are quite different from our own. So if you think about the goals that you have for yourself, your life today, this week, this year, there are probably things like, I want to spend more time with family, or I want to learn how to play the piano, or uh, I want to take that trip I've been thinking about and reflect on my life a bit. You know, these are real human goals. But if you look at the goals that technologies have for us, they're not usually these things. They're things like, um, you know, maximize the amount of time we spend with them, time on site, or the number of clicks, the number of times we can scroll or tap, or the number of page views on, or, or ad views, things like this. These, these kind of petty engagement metrics, as they're sometimes called. And, you know, working in the advertising industry, if any of you have worked in this space, this might be obvious, but you know, I think... This, you know, there's a deep fundamental gap here between you know, the goals we have and the goals our technologies have for us. And to me, like, that's the opposite of what technology is for. Technology is for helping us achieve these goals. Um, and so I think there is this kind of inconvenient truth that we either kind of ignore or maybe don't know about a lot of the time, which is that the attention economy, by and large, is not on our side. Like, its goals are not our goals. We kind of trust these things to be GPSs for our lives, assuming that they're doing the things that maybe even their marketing uh, you know, projects say they're doing for us. But really, they're directing us toward these petty kind of engagement goals. And, and this is very well known by the people who create them. Um, the CEO of Netflix uh, a little while back said, in addition to Snapchat and YouTube, one of their major competitors was sleep. Uh, and then he reiterated it, I think, a month or two ago. Uh, Steve Jobs did not let his children use the iPad, right? So there's a knowledge that there's some, there are these externalities of the attention economy, so to speak, that are out there affecting the world, but we just haven't taken these into account in kind of our analysis uh, or design of, of digital technologies. And you know, behind all of this is kind of just the nature of digital technologies, which is amplifying uh, you know, the, our, the need for us to kind of bring our own boundaries to the situation. So you know, for instance, Pokemon Go, where, um, you know, it's this game, and now it's literally all the time everywhere. So, you know, in the past, a game was this kind of system of interaction bounded in space or time somewhere, you know, the soccer game at this field on this day. But with something like Pokemon Go, it's, you know, the game is everywhere all the time. It's, it's we have to, the boundaries that were kind of part of the world get pushed onto us. So we have to, to put those in place ourselves. And, you know, like Goethe said, who would be great must be able to limit himself. And I think it's harder for us to achieve that type of greatness now because there's so much more boundary setting in our own lives that we have to do. Another amplifying factor here is uh, something that uh, I often call the treadmill of incompetence. So if you think about the amount of time it took technologies to reach 150 million users throughout history. So the telephone was 89 years, so multiple generations uh, of, of, of families to, to figure out what are the dynamics of this medium, how does it reshape our interactions, how do we respond to it. TV, 38 years, mobile phone, 14 years. As we go deeper and deeper into the digital era, uh, it, be this, it becomes shorter and shorter to the point where you know, the product may change between the time you use it and the next day such that you, know, it, you, know, you can't ever get to that point of competence. You can't ever master the technology. We're always in this perpetual state of learning. We can do something with the technologies, but not you know, completely master it uh, to, to bend it toward our own ends. Broadly speaking, what's happened in the last couple of decades is our knowledge of psychology, and particularly our non-rational biases, kind of these vulnerabilities in our brain, um, you know, non-rational dynamics of decision-making, 
we've, we'd like, we've developed an enormous catalog of, of these things. And, and, and at the same time, this system has emerged on the internet, a system of measurement, message delivery, optimization, experimentation. Uh, and these two kind of trends have come into conversation now in the attention economy. And what this has, means now is that you know, this industrial scale persuasion is now the primary business model of you know, our first really major global like communications medium. Uh, and this isn't widely talked about. You know, we still call you know, companies like Facebook or Twitter social media companies, but they're not selling social media. They're selling our attention. They're, they're, they're in the business of persuasion. But I think another factor that makes this so urgent to look at is because this power to shape people's attention, to persuade people toward one end or another, is increasingly centralized in the hands of just a few people Really, people in, you know, a few companies in one state, in one country. Uh, and it's a weird irony that the whole point of the Internet was that it was decentralized in, in, its, in its infrastructure, but then in the, the platforms that have emerged on it have been so, so centralized. So literally, there are people who would probably fit in this room who have their hands on levers that could control the attentional habits of, like, over 2 billion people on planet Earth. Like, that's really striking to me. You know, Alexander the Great could have never dreamed of that sort of power. You know, what I realized when I was, I was working at Google uh, is looking across the industry at, at, at the, the state of the attention economy and how little it was being talked about in society uh, and then feeling its effects in my own life, honestly. That, you know, there was more technology around me than ever before, but uh, it was harder somehow to do what I wanted to do. I felt we had made the same mistake that Aldous Huxley talked about uh, when he was uh, lamenting that defenders of freedom in his own time had failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. So I want to suggest that you know, if we're at all serious about promoting freedom or autonomy in the digital age, uh, it's really urgent for us to look at this situation and to, to start taking into account these, uh, the, our infinite appetite for distractions. And I think what that would entail is starting to uh, assert and defend uh, our freedom of attention. And so this is a, a, a sort of freedom that I think we haven't uh, had to assert, assert or defend strongly in the past because there wasn't a lot in our world that could really seriously threaten it. Uh, the threats were to freedom of expression, freedom of information. In an attention-scarce world as opposed to an information-scarce world, I think this becomes a much more important type of freedom. But I think we can find some good precedent for how to think about this type of freedom uh, in the great writers on the subject. For instance, John Stuart Mill, who in On Liberty said, the appropriate region of human liberty comprises first the inward domain of consciousness, liberty of thought and feeling, absolute freedom of opinion on all subjects, practical or speculative. So the first freedom is freedom of mind. So this principle requires liberty of tastes and pursuits of framing the plan of our life to suit our own character. And I think crucially, he adds, liberty of expressing and publishing opinions rests in great part on the same reasons and is practically inseparable from it. So there's a sense in which freedom of speech, freedom of expression depends on a freedom of attention in order to have value. And so I think this is something that has been in the background of, uh, of philosophy, in the background of our kind of uh, societal awareness in the past, but I think digital technologies and the attention economy are, are pushing very strongly into the foreground. One thing I think that Mill's comment here suggests, though, is that if we think about this in terms of attention, we need to think more broadly about what attention is. So, it, so far, you know, in day-to-day -day conversation, when we use the term attention, we normally mean uh, you know, the immediate direction of our awareness within the task domain. You know, like, I'm hungry and I see an apple, so I'm going to go eat that apple. Uh, cognitive scientists uh, often refer to this as a spotlight of our attention. Uh, so, for instance, in technology, let's say I'm trying to read a book, uh, and uh, my phone buzzes, and I see that, you know, Donald Trump has tweeted another outrageous tweet. Uh, uh, you know, so, so this distracts me from reading my book. So... When our spotlight gets distracted, it's distractions of action. Uh, but over time, our actions become habits, and our attentional world starts to look sort of like this. And I have to say, it's getting kind of weird, because this is becoming the kind of the, the dominant character of our, of our experiential lives. Um, and so I, I, we don't have a good way of talking in terms of attention about these kind of distractions over time, the way we don't just get distracted from our actions, but from our higher goals or our values in life. So I think 
we could sort of say there's maybe there's another light of attention in addition to the, the, the spotlight. There's kind of the starlight. So this would be you know, the way that we live by the stars of our higher goals and values. So you know, technology, the way that it might, st- it might be kind of standing in the starlight of our attention uh, is uh, when it, it shapes our habits, which is actually a big uh, emphasis of a lot of the kind of this industry of, uh, that has emerged to help uh, designers exploit our psychological biases and hook us, literally that's the term they use, hooked on, on, our, on persuasive technologies. So when you are using something that has an infinite scrolling news feed, for instance, uh, the psychological dynamic that's at play there is the same psychological dynamic that's at play in the design of slot machines. It's what underlies the billion-dollar-a-year, I think maybe more than that, um, industry of machine gambling. Uh, so it's, it, it, when you pull down to refresh, you're playing an informational slot machine. Um, and I think this is a big factor in the kind of you know, addictive, compulsive uh, character that these things have. Uh, and they're explicitly designed to be this way. This is fully known by the people who designed them, by the way. So when our starlight of our attention is getting, uh, is getting obscured, it sort of makes our values the values of the attention economy. And the values of the attention economy are things like pettiness, uh, narcissism, um, things like that. And you know, we see in the political domain this kind of pettiness, I think, more and more, uh, especially you know, over the, the past year, um, so I've, I know some people, uh, good people in Texas, who uh, are they would call themselves values voters. So they vote on the basis of these deep, you know, truths that they they uh, they you know have dedicated their lives toward. And you know, when Trump was you know initially uh, entered the race, he uh, they found him morally repugnant. He was just outrageous. There was like, of course, it was ridiculous the idea of ever supporting him. And then, you know, it was interesting to see then though the, the process of of them, they're using you know social media to kind of come to this collective uh, rationalization about uh, you know allowing themselves to, su- to support him, and so then they started posting things like this. Eventually, I, you know, I remain much more bothered by what Hillary has done than by what Trump has said. So values voters va- essentially voting directly uh, against their own values, and there's a kind of cognitive dissonance, uh, or some psychologists call it deep self discordance, that comes from this sort of thing, and you can feel it uh, when you talk to, to them. You see this at the level of the media as well. Last February, the CEO and chairman of CBS, uh, Les Moonves, said Trump's candidacy may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. I don't know why that quote wasn't on the front page of, I mean, I do know why it was on the front page of newspapers, but it ought to have been on the front page of newspapers because this is the kind of dissonance between our values and, and the values of the media that, um, that, that we all need to know about and have front and center every day. I think another thing that happens when we sort of start to, you know, our starlight of our attention starts to dim is that we start, start to lose interest in those higher values that we held dear. Um, there's a study, this was from the New York Times, uh, I believe this is a study from Harvard. Uh, the percentage of people across these, these liberal democracies who, who say it is essential to live in a democracy, so the, the y-axis is the percentage, the x-axis uh, within each country is their decade of birth. Um, and in recent years, it's been in a freefall. And, you know, these are, these are diverse countries with diverse economies, cultures, languages, economic situations. But, you know, one thing they do have in common is their dominant form of media, which is explicitly designed to kind of uh, nudge us into this kind of pettiness and this kind of lack of interest uh, with um, our higher goals or values to keep us, you know, impulsively doing things, not intentionally or reflectively doing things. And so obviously research will, will tell whether or not, you know, to what extent uh, you know, digital technologies have, have a role to play in this, but I, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's that unlikely an inference from this. So, so I've talked about how attention as the spotlight of our tasks and actions can get obscured by technology and how attention as um, kind of uh, the values and higher goals that we have can get obscured. But I think there may be one deeper level of uh, of attention that we could talk about here. Uh, and that is where uh, our underlying capacities for setting and uh, goals and values in the first place uh, gets obscured, not just pursuing our goals, but actually being able to define them in the first place. So we could think of this maybe even as the daylight of our attention, just our, those fundamental cognitive capacities. And there's a lot of things that, that one could talk about here, but um, uh, there's been, there have been studies that, that show that you know, repeated distractions over time actually decrease people's intelligence in the workplace. 
Uh, and uh, this was a study from HP, and they found that it was, on average, a decrease of 10 IQ points uh, from these repeated distractions, which I would note is uh, twice the decrease uh, from long-term marijuana usage. Uh, in the recent U.S. election, I think we also saw our faculties of prediction being undermined. Uh, so, you know, uh, you went to go to the New York Times, you know, before the election, and, and you'd see something like this. Um, you know, 91% chance to win. I think what, what happened was we saw that these minute changes in the chance of one or another candidate to win became the reward that, was, that brought us back to websites. So, oh, was it 91.4? Now it's 91.3. What happened, you know? Um, so, it, it, and these sites, a lot of their, you know, their goal is to sell page views and sell ads. And so I think that, you know, just the whole task of prediction, of statistical prediction, became, su- like, su- kind of subjugated to the, the goals and dynamics of the attention economy. You know, we could almost, if we have clickbait, we could almost think of this as, like, stat bait or something. And so I think that, you know... So basically, so yeah, so these are kind of our uh, things that get undermined. But I think one place we see this kind of daylight of our attention, these capacities being undermined uh, today in politics is, at most, is probably in the case of outrage. So um, the Internet is basically one big outrage machine now, isn't it? Um, it seems like every week we have some enormous problem that everybody on the Internet decides all at once to just get mad about and come down on someone on and try to ruin someone's life about. Uh, for example, uh, you know, just to take one example, a little while back uh, there was this uh, case of Cecil the lion. So a dentist from Minnesota went to Zimbabwe and killed this lion. Uh, and it was, he shouldn't have done it. It was probably illegal. Um, but what happened was you know, the whole Internet erupted. People showed up at his place of work, you know, putting signs saying, rot in hell. There was just public shame fest that emerged. And, you know, when children do this kind of thing, we call it, like, cyberbullying or something. Uh, but when adults do this, it's kind of, you know, people call it karma or, you know, sweet revenge or whatever. Um, but outrage is one of the biggest types of behaviors that the attention economy selects for because it fulfills a lot of psychological needs all at once. It gives us a sense of moral clarity in a world where that's hard to come by. It gives us social solidarity. It, it, it's an opportunity for us to signal to other people that we're trustworthy when we, when we, when we express our outrage. And so, you know, like whether politically or in any other context, I mean, this is, I think, one of the, the dominant types of, uh, of, of kind of output of, of the attention economy now. Um, so I guess to summarize, then, if we could think about more attention more broadly than just the spotlight of our immediate awareness that helps us kind of do what we want to do, we could think of the starlight of our attention as relating to our pursuit of higher goals and values, helping us be who we want to be, and then finally, wanting what we want to want, as Harry Frankfurt, the, the, the Princeton philosopher, puts it. Um, and, and this is the way he thinks about the structure of the human will as well in this tripartite form. And I think that, you know, in the question of attention, you know, this is ultimately what's at stake. It's, it's an undermining and erosion of the human will, uh, and which is, of course, also the basis of the authority of government, according to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And so I think... Our challenge in the digital age is to start thinking about kind of the externalities of the attention economy in this broader way and to start taking into account you know, our, our infinite appetite for distractions and the much wider set of distractions that technology can produce. So we could think of this then in this same tripartite format as maybe being three types of distractions. So the stuff we normally think about is the functional distractions. So I was going to read a book. I got distracted by the Trump tweet, whatever. So it's kind of alignment between your intentions and your actual actions. Uh, but, but we can think of the, you know, the second bucket as existential distraction, uh, where there's misalignment between our values, uh, our identities. Um, it gets into questions of uh, the, our preferred working style, a level of regretted, regrettedness of behavior. Uh, and then thirdly, we can think of you know, when our daylight kind of gets obscured, our, under, our, our underlying capacities become eroded, we could think of that as, as a kind of epistemic distraction, um, where it makes it uh, harder for us to know ourselves, to know the world, uh, it makes it harder to reflect, uh, undermines willpower, reasoning, intelligence, etc. So this is, I, this is a very quick view, uh, kind of, uh, view of some of these, uh, these issues, but I think it, it, in the end, the, the this position this leaves us in then uh, is well expressed by Aristotle in the politics. We said it is, it is disgraceful to be unable to use our good things. 
Because um, I think this is an intolerable situation. Because if technology is for helping us live our lives better, for helping us do the things we want to do better, then why would we tolerate a system that is fundamentally designed to not do those things? It's like if you had a GPS and every time you used it, it took you to the next city or the next country. You, know, you would never continue using that GPS. You would throw it out of your car or stomp on it and break it out of anger. Um, so why do we tolerate it from systems that navigate us not through physical space but informational space? I think we should hold them to the same standard. So the, briefly, I'll talk about how we might be able to uh, deal with the situation. So the, the stock answer that's usually given when there are these issues of distraction, of attention, is put it back on the user, put it back on the person. It's their responsibility to work harder, uh, to, uh, to self-limit. And if they can't, it's their problem. Um, this is a great infographic that I actually had as my desktop background for a couple years, uh, saying, you know, telling you, hey, here are the things you shouldn't do, here are the things you should do. Uh, it's a great flowchart, um, but like, it didn't help at all. And I, I, I even followed some of it a little bit. But th the problem is you know, taking this approach and saying this is the answer is to say you know, there's a system out there, an industry of thousands of the world's smartest engineers, scientists, statisticians, designers, who are trying to undermine your willpower every day. So the answer is just have more willpower. Uh, I don't think it works like that. Um, you know, we need the right environment to help us do the things we want to do. I even went to the point, <laughs> this is kind of embarrassing, uh, when I was at Google, I printed out the Wikipedia page of cognitive biases and uh, hung it next to my desk thinking that if they were somehow just next to me and I could flip through them every once in a while, I wouldn't be as susceptible to their effects. But, it, you know, it, I absolutely was. If anything, it probably made it worse because this was just another, another distraction. Uh, but, uh, but I think we can't, so we can't blame ourselves. We can't put it all back on ourselves or users. But I think we also can't put it all on designers, the people who make these technologies. Because you know, I know many of them. Many of them are my friends. They're generally good people. Nobody goes into design because they want to make people's life worse. They usually do it because they want to help people and make their lives better. So basically, this isn't a question of the ethics of individual designer actions. I think this is a question of the the system, the infrastructure, uh, what Luciano Floridi calls the infra ethics. So designers at these companies are like players in a game. And the problem isn't with the players. The problem is with the game. And so I think this is the perspective that is really important for us to take because it's easy for us to fall into that kind of whole outrage fest again in reacting to this stuff and say, oh, Facebook or Google is just trying to do X, Y, Z. Um, and I think that's something that, that in uh, advancing in these areas we really need to be uh, aware of and make sure that we don't, don't do. So what are some of the infra-ethical innovations then? Uh, how could we intervene in the system of the attention economy to really nudge it or move it back in the right direction such that it's aligned with our true goals, our, our deeper values, and respects our attention, respects the human will. Um, it would include, but not, but not be limited to, to some of these things, uh, including language, uh, metrics, uh, you know, the, the kind of the, the key performance indicators, the goals of design, um, the business models that, that we have, uh, design processes, patterns. Um, I'll talk about two or three of them briefly here. Um, I think one really important thing with, with persuasion is the way we talk about it. So if you think about, like, it's already very fragmented. Like, we have, you know, advertising, propaganda, proselytizing. There's sort of as many domains of human life as there are. There are just that, as many ways of talking about persuasion, it seems like. But if we could kind of come up with a common way of, of talking about persuasive attempts, persuasive designs. So this is just one idea I had here. Um, so on the x-axis, if you have the degree of goal alignment, how aligned is the technology with your goals? And then the y-axis is the degree of constraint. I mean, how much does it restrain you from making your own decision? Uh, so we could say then that a technology with a, uh, a low degree of, or high degree of constraint and a low degree of goal alignment would be a seductive technology, whereas we might say that a, a technology with a medium amount of constraint but a high degree of goal alignment would be like a guidance technology. So this is just a very, you know, this is the first stab, but, but I think if we could kind of converge on a common way of talking about some of these aspects of persuasion, I think it would be a great boon to this project as a whole. Another thing is I think we need to rethink what advertising ought to do for us in an information-abundant world. Um, the justification for advertising historically has largely been that it gives you information that helps you make a purchase decision better. Um, and, you know, in, 
you know, in the past, it often did this. And broadly speaking, you could say it kind of appealed to our intentions. But I think what we see now is, you know, also advertising that appeals to our attention. Just that the whole point is to just grab and keep and exploit our attention and not our intentions. In the context of digital technology, we might think of search advertising as a as a as an example of. The, uh, of the former, and then a sort of you know banner advertising on websites is an example of the latter. It, it, it's weird to me that both of these types of advertising have been bundled together under this one umbrella term advertising, because to me these are very different types of appeals to people, and uh, not just uh, in terms of their mechanics, but also in their moral implications. Um, and I think another thing within advertising we need to do is is really call out when there is this kind of elision between. Uh, talking about people as Im- as impulsive and people as intentional. So this is uh, actually a screen grab from a website that Google puts together for advertisers to help them advertise uh, more effectively. Uh, it says, smartphones allow us to act on any impulse at any time. We take immediate action whenever we want to learn, find, do, or buy something. So there's a kind of kind of uh, there's a kind of conflating of you know the impulsive self, that sort of automatic self, with sort of an intentional self. That you know, I want to learn this, do this, find this, and if if that was the way that advertisements came to us day to day, that would be great. But you know, it ends up being stuff like this more often. You know, uh, where it's like, you know, am I trying to learn, find, do, or buy something? I don't know. Like, like hawking a freemium game at me, and you, do, you barely even know that it's an ad. Uh, but I love this guy's response. <laughs> like, uh, And finally, I think you know, at a cultural level, and, and this is a very is a skimming across the surface of all of these issues, obviously. But I think we really need to kind of learn to value our attention for what it's worth, because I think we deep, we deeply undervalue it today, um, and and realize that when we pay for a free technology, we're paying with our attention. It's not really free, um, you know, because many of these technologies we don't even have a choice. Like, there's no, I don't have a choice to to pay money for technology. Uh, for a face version of Facebook that's aligned with my goals, I have to, I'm stuck with the attention uh, version. So, um, I guess, kind of finally, uh, as it relates to kind of this the question, uh, this umbrella question of the impossibility of politics. Um, one thing I think about is Thomas Paine's quote from Common Sense: "Of when men, when men yield up this privilege of thinking, the last shadow of liberty quits the horizon." And I think that you know, the the question here then becomes, is there a point at which our attention, our will, could be so undermined by the forces of the attention economy that um, there would be a point of no return? And I think this is an open question. But I think what it, the nature of this question would be looking for something that in Roman law uh, was called the benefit of competence. So a benefit of competence was if you're a debtor and you owe somebody a lot of money and you can't pay it, um, you can't have everything you own taken from you to pay for that. There's some stuff that you, you get to keep either way, uh, like the tools you need to go about doing your job, to keep on living, just like those basic things that are necessary for existence that um, you know, even you know, if everything else you have was liquidated, they can't be taken from you. So is there an, an attentional benefit of competence that we need to assert in the digital age, and what should that be? I think it's a huge question. Um, like, you know, I take a lot of, of inspiration from Marshall McLuhan, who said, uh, you know, these media are art forms that have the power of imposing their own assumptions. They're not ways of relating us to the real world. They are the real world. So the attention economy is not a way of relating us to the world. It is our world. Uh, and I think that this, all of the kind of uh, the, the things that I mentioned earlier are, um, are evidence of this. And, you know, technology has gone from being a tool to being our environment. And so I think what we're talking about here is, is changing the design of our environment. And if, if politics, broadly speaking, is about how we negotiate the power to change our environment one way or the other. Um, it seems to me that what's happened is technology design has kind of done an end run around everything else and is now intervening in our world at this prim- primary level of human experience, our attention. Um, and so it seems to me that uh, you know, not only is uh, our digital technologies influencing politics, they are already inherently political in, in, in the question of their design. Um, and I think, therefore, one shift that is needed is to see technology design as kind of the ground of first political struggle um, in in this new era. And, you know, whether by uh, guidance or by resistance, I think, again, the attitude we need to take, the approach we need to take uh, in response to to this situation 
uh, is that uh, that response that Diogenes had to Alexander, uh, asking him to stand out of our light. Uh, because uh, without that kind of response, I think it's very hard to see uh, how we'll get past this uh, and, uh, and change the trajectory of technology design uh, in the direction of human goals and values. So thank you very much for your attention. Okay, thanks very much, James. Wonderful talk. And uh, there's way too much to talk about in the time we have. Um, I'm reminded of, you quote in the wonderful essay you've written, which is under embargo, I feel kind of privileged to have read it. Um, you quote Aldous Huxley a few times, as you did there, and he's known for his work in Brave New World. But he also wrote a kind of more utopian uh, novel called Island, which you, you'll know, where one of the characters on, on the island are these reminder birds. And the reminder birds kind of fly around the island saying, attention, attention, just to get people to sort of come back to themselves periodically. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, in the modern world, you're speaking about changing the, the system, you know, a very fundamental overhaul of how we're looking at the world. But I'm, I was thinking to myself, what is the modern equivalent of reminder birds? What, you know, what, would, what would the things be in our environment that would bring us back? So what do you feel about that? Well, I think historically, I mean, in a lot of ways, this has been in the domain of religion, you know, like the idea of the Sabbath, kind of these, these um, habits of, of reflection every once in a while. Um, and so I think what's happened is, you know, and, and Peter Sloterdijk, uh, the German philosopher, writes for, uh, well on this, is, you know, in throwing out kind of religion, the whole package deal on the basis of various philosophical, cosmological disagreements, we also threw out this whole set of habits and practices that basically let us kind of design our life in the direction of certain values. And, and you know, reflection, I think, was absolutely one of those you see across, you know, traditions, you know, kind of meditation and sort of thing. Um, and so... You know, I think that part of the answer could be to, you know, kind of reclaim that part of, of religion, which uh, Sloterdijk, he refers to that, that aspect of it as anthropotechnics, and I love that word. Um, but it could be coming up with new ones as well. Uh, yeah, so, so I think that, it, you know, at the end of the day, it's about how do we structure our environment to, to induce reflection, to incentivize the right sort of reflection that, that you know, uh, maybe it is getting a minor bird to come and squawk attention in our ear to wake us up every morning. I don't know. Pigeons Trafalgar Square, we get to redesign them to, yeah, to that for us now. Get some parrots or something. And also, you didn't touch on it so much now, but I know in the essay there's quite a lot of stuff about willpower and, and the will. And you link, beautifully I think, you link the UN Declaration of Human Rights, speaking about the will of the people, to, and how, how the will of the people has to be the basis of democracy. And you connect the will as being sort of prime, you know, the primary function of the will is somehow regulated by attention. And then you say, therefore, the battle for attention and the freedom of attention is fundamentally a democratic political, political issue, um, which I, I completely buy. I wonder, however, at a level of communication, uh, if, if we're ready for that yet. If that, you know, what, what's been your experience of communicating these ideas? Do you feel people look at you with eyes glazing over, or you feel they're ripe and ready to sort of hear this kind of thing? Yeah, I think, I think it, it's interesting. I mean, I've come at a lot of these issues from the kind of the individual user perspective, partly because I've you know, felt them in my own life and then partly because I was, was working in the tech industry. And um, when, you know, talking to, to users uh, back when I was at Google, you know, just going out on the street in, in Man Manhattan and talking to them and, um, you know, asking people, you know, do you get distracted by technology? Do you have problems regulating your use? There was a kind of a a common response we would find, people would say, you know, I don't really have a problem with it, but my friend to is totally, he like can't control himself. So I think that, I think part of the challenge here is that we see uh, like our inability to self-regulate as not just a kind of uh, like procedural failing, but a moral failing in some sense. And, um, and so I think that's one thing to get over. I think one thing that can help us get past that is actually humor. So I think Louis C.K., the comedian, uh, has several good bits on kind of these challenges uh, with attention and distraction. He hasn't connected them to kind of broader political things yet. But um, I, I do broadly agree, and I think this relates to the Simon, the Herbert Simon quote that I started with, where information abundance makes attention scarce. And most of like our systems, whether linguistic, cultural, you know, uh, political, whatever, they kind of assume att uh, information scarcity. But now we've moved to attention scarcity and information abundance. And I think one way of talking about this challenge of this, you know, it's going to be a process, and a lot of it will probably take a while, but I think it's about, you know, how do we sort of just redesign our systems to take into account this new environment of information abundance? Yeah. I, mean, I love the, the use of lights. Um, 
you know, spotlight, starlight, and, and daylight. And you, you seem to think that the, you seem to be hinting at the primary one, the most important one, perhaps preeminent, was daylight in the sense that it's almost like we needed to first of all become aware of what we had to do before we could actually do it. Um, I was just wondering how that kind of works culturally because we're so saturated in this. It's as if we're, you know, there's a bootstrapping problem. It's like we have, we're sort of lost in this system of attentional economy. We have to reclaim freedom of attention while in it. Um, talk us through how that works. Your, your, your vision of how, you know, the best case scenario of how this unfolds. Yeah, I mean, um, well, I think, I think that, that's one of these interesting paradoxes of the attention economy. How do you reform the attention economy from within the attention economy? Um, and, you know, Marshall McLuhan, as I understand it, I think, you know, he thought one of the best ways of doing this sort of thing was via parody, where you're, um, you're not, you know, criticizing the system with the, the information, the content of what you're saying, but the way you're saying it. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, in, you know in, in the era, in the year when we got, you know, Trump as a president, like two of our, our best kind of parodists, satirists in the U.S., um, you know, stopped doing what they were doing. Um, I think, you know, I think parody is a very, is a very um, good way of bringing background dynamics into the foreground, which is, I guess, one way of, of talking about what we need to do here. Um, you know, part of it might be like finding these, these habits of reflection these, to put in place. Um, I actually think that you know, science fiction has a big role to play in all of this. Uh, so you know, uh, I am a huge fan of like Star Trek and... Uh, um, and, you, and at Google, you know, if you talk to engineers and you say, like, working on search, you say, tell me what you're working on. Uh, it's like, well, we're building a computer from Star Trek, you know. And, like, people have said this publicly about kind of the, the visions that they have for technology. They're so inspired by these, uh, the, the science fiction narratives that they have grown up with. And um, I think there's an enormous role for us to sort of take science fiction and, um, and not just imagine the, the, the dystopias, but also you know, the potential utopia is the good things. The challenge with, with Huxley was, you know, as with all things of this nature, is it, it's just more interesting to read the dystopias than it is to read uh, the utopias because if everything's going well, then there's no conflict and there's not really much of a story. So, uh, but, but, um, but, yeah, I think that it would it'd be great to see uh, more science fiction writers uh, take on kind of these, these questions of, of attention, yeah. Good. Who'd, have, who'd have thought that's where sort of political hope lay, yeah. All right, so um, many questions. I'm David Wood uh, from London Futurists. Uh, inspiring and important talk. Can I offer thoughts on uh, possible technology design to maybe help produce a better utopia, the design that will uh, help us to attend to the things that's important? So rather than it's just our willpower versus the technology, but the technology could be intervening just as it already does it says don't look at these emails they're probably spam don't click on this email it's probably malware by the way when you're writing this probably change the spelling and it may in the future say don't bother posting this this is just going to add to the and so are there are there ways in which we could take back the design of technology as a sort of public good rather than just leaving it in the hands of great corporations whose goals aren't entirely aligned with our own uh, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for the question. It's, I think it's, it's a, a hugely important question. And so the, um, there's an initiative I'm involved with called Time Well Spent that is, is looking at kind of mapping a lot of this out. Uh, and there are a lot of pieces to what this could look like. But um, I mean, I think one thing that we could do today, we could start demanding from technology companies today, is a new sort of transparency, uh, a goal transparency. So, you know, the marketing... Uh, statements of companies say we want to do X and Y for your life, but if you were to actually look at the dashboards in their product design meetings, you don't, you probably wouldn't see that. Um, so I think when companies say that they 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 want to do something for our lives, I think our response should be you know prove it. Um, and uh, and I would love to see this kind of uh, transparency um, emerge um, because you know at the end of the day, I think I think this kind of alignment, what it means, what it would look like is. You know, the company, uh, you know, says this is like the net benefit we want to add to your life. And you know that and you're sort of on the same page about that. And then I think that would fix a lot of the downstream design questions, you know, like where do you put this button or that button. Um, but, um, but I think that goal alignment is one of the most important things. So, uh, and then part of that, as I had mentioned, um, involves uh, coming up with new business models that give companies uh, um, the ability to maybe um, – kind of uh, promote human goals uh, it, into the, um, th that may be conflicting with kind of their business, business mode. So. 
Well, just, just to um, correct a misconception I may have given, I don't think James is arguing that uh, the answer to current attentional overload is, is exerting willpower. In fact, you actually argue that that's a, a false solution, partly because of all the cognitive biases we have. The point is much more subtle. It's about the fact that to have willpower at all is to have some control of your attention, as I, as I understand it. Hi, James. My, my name is Nick DiMaggio. I'm from the Courtauld Institute of Art down the road, Somerset House. Uh, I'd like to explore with you your interest in science fiction in the context of what technology is, what it's for, and what we can actually do with it. Primarily, we're not talking just about the internet, are we? We're just talking about digital tools. We're talking about lifestyles having to change their sequence and their behaviours to fit in with the technology. In this utopian world, because um, utopia is more important than the dystopia, as you suggested. How could we do that? Do we just unplug the technology and just live our lives as in the, in the Garden of Eden? Or do we adapt the technology to be a little bit more similar in terms of simulation to the Garden of Eden? Hi, a few years ago, Naomi Grimley from the BBC, a few years ago people were sort of predicting the death of the the book, but if you went up to Foyle's bookshop now, you'd find it packed. Do you think there's a, a good sign there that actually uh, there are people being disciplined, going back to sort of older activities that do keep your attention plugged in? Hi, um, Aaron Degenhart. I was wondering if you have much thoughts on the kind of the underlying problem almost being like a capitalist mode of production um, demands these companies like Facebook make a profit, but the contradiction is when traditionally capitalists extracted profit from labour, they're now extracting it from our, atten our attention. Um, and so, you know, we could all quit Facebook in protest, but then we might suddenly find it quite hard to navigate any kind of opposition because we're no longer on Facebook. Question. And one last question at the back, though, please. Hi, uh, I'm Matthew Fennec. I work with a think tank on the socioeconomic impacts of artificial intelligence. I was struck by your point on outrage cycles, on how people feel the need to join in so they feel that they can be trusted. I wonder what how much you ascribe that to or put it in the context of the globalizing effect of the internet and maybe people feeling rootless and maybe there's a role for, uh, rather the question is how do we use technology to recreate that sense of community? Maybe go, I can just go in reverse order. I think uh, on the point of kind of, um, I guess, you know, glob globalization and, and I, th I think that that's one effect of kind of this information abundance um, and just like, you know, hyper-connectivity, um, the instantaneity of access. And I think... Um, you know, one way that sort of the anxiety about that information abundance manifests itself is in these kind of, like, kind of uh, geographic shifts, you know, like, like, I think, you know, in a sense, like, you know, building a wall, like Trump's building a wall thing, it's really, it's, it, it's, some of his supporters even said, well, it's, he, he's not literally, he's metaphorical. One of his supporters actually said, had made a comment, I think Sam Altman was interviewing him, and I thought it was really telling, he said, we need borders at every level of our society. It's like, every level of our society. So I think that this boundary border setting is, is a thing, is kind of a phenomenon or a need that we have in a lot of domains of human life. But then um, one way that then people sometimes, I guess, feel that or kind of put, you know, meat on that, that, those bones is, is by, you know, looking, talking about it in geographic terms. So um, I, think, I think the thing about books is, like, to me, almost the proliferation of, of books is evidence that, that they're, they're, they're not as, they're not the, the kind of the, the main medium of society uh, anymore. I mean, the fact that, that we can even give attention to the fact of buying and reading a book as a special and unique thing shows that it's like it is the foreground. It's not the background anymore. Right. So it's, it's like, um, yeah, so it's, it's like, like McLuhan said, like when a medium becomes obsolete, it becomes an art form. And I think you've seen kind of books become more of an art form, which in some ways is good because, you know, there are certain things they're doing better now than they used to be, but they're, they're, they're not in the same position as kind of like they're not shaping the, the, the the dynamics of our okay. our thought and experience in the way they used to at all. Very interesting, because a lot of the story of how books are doing so well is partly because of the how they look now, so much sort of thicker pages and, you know, silver things and beautiful covers, and you think that's partly because they're not actually so much used for the content, but some yeah. kind of symbolic device to... Yeah, I mean, the unique thing then that a physical book has in an information abundant world is its physicality, right. and so then I think then you see, uh, let's have better paper, better art, you know, so the, the physicality becomes the main benefit to it, yeah. And then the really the big, huge question, because I also felt this while listening and reading, um, you recognize that these technologies are coming out of 
uh, other economic and political structures. That they're driven by profit motives, concentrations of data, right. power, and so forth. Yeah. Um, but you're not talking about the complete overhaul of capitalism as such. But, but what you're suggesting is that you have to get to the root causes. So how do you yeah. square that? Well, I think, I guess there are maybe two ways of talking about it. One way is, I mean, I think a way of talking about what's happening here is a kind of mental capitalism, as Georg Frank, uh, the, the German, uh, or the Viennese, I believe, um, scholar has, has put it. Um, essentially that, yeah, there's, there's been this, uh, this untapped resource, this natural resource of our attention um, that has just been pounced on and we're now just coming to realize that it's a, a natural resource and the value of it. And so similar with like pollution, uh, you know, in the environmental movement, you know, once we started taking that externality into account in the system, we could really kind of manage it better. I think these externalities of distraction, like they're a pollution of a sort. Um, and I think so one way of talking about what we need to do is to take this into account in the system. The other thing I would say, though, is like, like getting better at, the, at this stuff, it doesn't mean that companies can't make money. Um, I, so I, like, as, I think this is where that intention, attention distinction comes in. So you know, if a technology is advertising something to me, but it's, it's aligned with my goals and helping me do what I want to do, it's kind of sponsored support for my own, my own interests, my own goals. And, and that, that's you know, great. Like, Supply and demand. Really, at its heart. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's an alignment of, of goals and interests there. I think where, where it, it, it is problematic now is where those goals are misaligned. Um, so but you can still absolutely make, make money with advertising if it's supporting what people want to do. The whole point of advertising, at least as it's become, is to shape demand. It's actually to create, you should want this. And, and part of your thesis is, we want to want what we want to want. And, and aren't those in absolute conflict? I think part of, I guess, what I was, what I was getting at is, um, is ab- like, nobody has a, a good definition of what advertising is anymore. Like, nobody, even advertisers can't, can't agree. Um, and there are all these types of persuasion that are part of advertising. And I think one thing that we need to do is really kind of defragment all that stuff, uh, you know, like pull out, you know, pull demand fulfillment away from demand generation. Right. Because, again, like I said, I think those are very different things on a moral, in a moral sense. Yes. Yeah. Okay. okay, thank you for listening. I'm wondering, just a quick straw poll, because it's important. Part of what you're saying is, look, the language of attention as such is important. To speak of this, to give life to it. We speak of the economy, we speak of politics, we speak of society. When we speak of attention in that context, people struggle with it. So one of the things we want you to do is, you know, consider whether that word is, what it means to you and so forth. I want to quickly ask a straw poll, you know, who feels if they were asked to give a definition of attention and why it matters, they, they, could, they could do that at the moment. Hands up, please. You feel you could confidently do that. Yeah, so, so it's irresolute, sort of roughly third to a half. Um, I think it's really great that we've brought these ideas to bear, and it, it's, we're all awaiting a book. For those of you who don't know, this arose from an essay prize, from the Nine, the nine Dots Prize, um, that was a big cash prize and a contract with Cambridge University Press to write a book on the subject. So you'll shortly be hearing from James again in the form of a published book uh, later this year, if, 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 I, if I'm correct. So it's going to be a feast. Um, we've already had a great appetizer. Thanks very much, James, for coming on. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, the rsa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.